Did you hear something? No. Hmm. Did I? I don't know. Do you like The Simpsons? I like The Simpsons. And you might be pleased to know that it is Simpsons time right now. I'm going to be talking today about episode number 105, Lisa's Rival, written by Mike Scully, uh, one of the first episodes he wrote, if not the first. Uh, this was way before he became the show head of The Simpsons, but uh, it is a very impressive one to have under your belt as a writer, I believe. And there are little flourishes in it that... Um, you can tell are his. Uh, Mike Scully is known on The Simpsons for being a big rock music fan, especially of Springsteen. Uh, but, you know, there are other... He's sort of knowledgeable about music and likes to sneak music references in to episodes. Um, and in Lisa's Rival, there's the whole dream sequence of Lisa performing with... Uh, Garfunkel, Messina, and Oates, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure that that was his. And there's something about that uh, that Marge moment with the romance novel that strikes me as being Mike Scully-like. It could have been someone else, but I don't know, I just sort of, it seems like him. She said, never having been in a Simpsons writer's room in her life, just guessing based on the what she knows, which admittedly is less than she would like to. Um, just quickly to mention that love in the time of scurvy thing. I, I think it really skirts the line. You know, there's something about it that's a little bit insulting to Marge, but it doesn't quite become insulting and it's just really funny. I like that um, the sexy, you know, sexually ambiguous pirate that she's fantasizing about, um, like he needs total quiet in order to make out with her and Lisa's uh, blowing the sacks and intruding on the whole fantasy. Like, completely takes him out of the moment you know like the, the thing that I don't know it's just so sad that Marge is very into this man in her dreams in the, in a romance novel and even he doesn't isn't really into her you know and something as innocuous as a saxophone being played can uh, completely ruin his desire it's really like rather pathetic but also hilarious 
I think Marge is just being realistic. <laughs> um, the plot of this is completely wonderful. It is such a believable idea that Lisa would have somebody that she is insecure comparing herself to. And the character is just impeccably acted by Winona Ryder. She is one of my two favorites um, of the long list now of people who were guest stars playing little girls. Because you can really hear that it is her voice, yet she's clearly doing a character. It's not Winona Ryder as, you know, it's not like a little girl with Winona Ryder's personality. It's a character of a little girl voiced by Winona Ryder. And my other favorite person who does that is Meryl Streep, who, uh, as Jessica Lovejoy, is just completely um, believable as a little girl. And I will get more into the specifics of the character of Allison and, you know, their whole adventure together in a moment. But I have to talk a lot this show, this week, about uh, the B story, which was pitched by George Meyer and um, people on the show are always very, very quick to credit it to him lest anyone else, you know, get credit for it, because it is very much his style of humor. I speak, of course, of Homer and the sugar pile. Homer's whole scheme of having a mountain of sugar in the backyard that he is going to try to sell. And it is just, like, so wonderfully absurd, and it balances out the... Uh, wonderful down-to-earthness of the rest of the show perfectly and um, I think is a perfect example of uh, Simpsons at their height at, you know at the height of their good quality being able to mix things that are so outlandish and things that are down-to-earth and occasionally they still do it, but never as successfully as they did in seasons five, six, seven. I, I'm preaching to the choir, I realize, but um, yeah, you know, Farmer Homer's <laughs> country sugar, you know, the illustration that he's made in the, you know, for the sugar bag <laughs> that he's already started to market like that afternoon. is amazing the um <laughs> the englishman that comes out of nowhere to nick a little bit of sugar for his tea that homer grabs by the collar 
is amazing. And I love that he comes back just for one shot to do a spit take after the sugar pile melts. The whole, uh, of course, the speech, the, you know, flight of fancy where, where Homer in a paranoid way talks about um, the fact that he will never be the darling of the so-called city fathers who cluck their tongues, stroke their beards, and wonder what's to be done about this Homer Simpson. That apparently was all written by George Meyer. And uh, the that one speech that, you know, just before the bees ruin everything was animated by David Silverman, who uh, heard the performance and told the director, Mark Kirkland, that he wanted to take over just for those, like, 12 seconds or however long it is. And it is just amazing. It's, like, one of my favorite pieces of animation ever. You know, him strutting around beside the sugar pile, making those gestures. And I haven't even talked about, in America, first you get the sugar, then you get the power, then you get the women. Yay, Homer in the sugar pile. Maybe I'll talk more about that if I have time at the end of talking about the rest of this fine, fine episode. Allison Taylor is introduced to us as a voice that chimes in in the back of the classroom uh, when Miss Hoover is about to call on Lisa. Allison interrupts and we discover that someone besides Lisa in the second grade is smart. And not only that, she plays the saxophone and she's trying out for first chair, which is what Lisa had been practicing for in the very top of the episode when uh, she ruins Marge's sexual fantasy uh, and also distracts other members of her family. And... It is very sweet. You know, Allison is a nice little girl who has just been skipped ahead from the first grade. Um, so she's like, you know, it's just horrible. You really feel for Lisa. It's the double whammy of the kid is smarter and also younger than her. And she's better at the saxophone because she gets first chair. Lisa doesn't. And incidentally, I really like that they took the time to do her waking up, her her waking up fake out from her uh, dream after she passes out. And then doing the exact same shots and even some of the same dialogue over again uh, with Mr. Largo saying, no, you regain consciousness. Allison is first chair, you know, over and over, not over and over again, but twice. Um, it's not lost on me that it takes up a lot of time in the show to do that, but that they carefully did it, you know, because it would be funny to be repeated. 
And it just gets worse and worse. Uh, Lisa really, you know, tries to overcome her jealousy and be friends with Allison, but then she sees that Allison lives in a beautiful house with a doting father who does anagrams with her, and she's got a room full of trophies that are so sparkly that they dazzle the eye, you know? It's really, it's really not the best for Lisa. And uh, perhaps, you know, because he sympathizes with um, her finally feeling like an underdog, you know, in a different way than she usually does, Bart comes to her aid. and helps her sabotage the diorama contest um, so that Allison doesn't win with her amazing diorama with a little, what is it, a wristwatch or a metronome in it um, that tells the story of the, the Telltale Heart by Poe. Very cleverly done that Allison's diorama is about the Telltale Heart and then the scene in the diorama-rama in the gym when it's being judged is also similar to the Telltale Heart. In the story, the narrator is driven insane because he hallucinates the sound of the corpse's heart beating. Um, and, and thus gives himself away to the police. And Lisa does the exact same thing. The um, diorama with the metronome in it is placed in a, like underneath a trap door in the gym. And, uh, she even says the same line. I think in Poe, it's, it's the beating of his hideous heart. And she says the hideous heart, but you know that it's supposed to be the same. But Bart is very nice and very helpful. You know, like he, I like that he wants to see Lisa destroy this other little girl. And he tries so hard to do the prank properly. Especially when the dioramas are being judged when Bart is doing his like weird chicken dance trying to distract people. <laughs> he really does a good job of that. And doing like different funny voices to tip off the crowd that it's the uh, that the fake replacement diorama is a cow's heart from a butcher's window. I have been in this situation before. I'm sure plenty of you readers have too, you know, where adults have thought that you're smart, you know, they see potential in you. I'm talking of the moment between Lisa and uh, 
Allison's father. You know, like, there's a moment in your childhood when people see that you're smart, but then they see that you're not that smart, <laughs> and you really get one chance to impress them. And there's a certain type of adult that, if they're not impressed right away, has absolutely no time for you. And um, that is exactly what happens when Allison's dad hands Lisa the ball. Oh, and she can't even master the ball. It's so true to life. I love that moment because I hate that moment. We see a very small uh, reference to the fugitive uh, when <laughs> Bart mentions that uh, he's ruined Milhouse's life <laughs> by getting the FBI to look for him. And we also see Milhouse jump off a dam a la the fugitive. And the worst thing that happens to him is that he breaks his glasses. And we see him later on with broken glasses. That's real sort of David Merkin zaniness when that happens. Because it's such a small part of the episode. It's like almost not there at all. And, you know, the whole diorama-rama thing is great. You know, seeing everyone's different diorama. Nelson's one is particularly charming to me. The Grapes of Wrath. And it's great at the end because, you know, you, Ralph gets to have a moment of triumph. And this is really, I think, kicking off the age of Ralph Wiggum being a very popular character because of the line, my cat's breath smells like cat food, and because of his, um, his victory in the diorama-rama. He really, like, that sort of put him over the top, I think. Although I Love Lisa two seasons before was so good, too. And so, yeah, it's a very satisfying end, uh, not just because Allison and Lisa are friends, but also because there's a callback to, you know, the fact that Ralph was trying to cheat off of Lisa and then Allison earlier on. And that he is unequivocally the stupidest member of the second grade. And he triumphs over the two smartest members and that just goes to show you that you you know even if you're smart you don't win uh, a little bit uncharacteristic of Skinner to know what Star Wars is and uh, 
and kind of break the rules of the diorama-rama because he likes Star Wars. Um, but it doesn't bother me that much because of the line and my favorite Chewie. <laughs> like, I just can't help but be delighted by that. And the last thing I'll mention, which goes back to Farmer Homer's sugar, uh, is the two characters of the beekeepers are, are very great. Simpson, you diabolical. It just, uh, it ties a wonderful bow on, uh, on the whole sugar subplot. This has been Simpsons Time. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, ask me not for sportive lays like those I used to sing. The harp you loved in former days has lost its sweetest string. And if I sing of youthful joys, I touch Some poetry read by Sir Alec Guinness. To conclude Simpsons Time Through the Debigulator today, our discussion of Lisa's rival. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Amanda Nazario. This is a podcast from WFMU in Jersey City. And it has been my pleasure to bring it to you. I will be back next week discussing a different Simpsons episode. Hooray! For tears have spoilt the wire.